Thanks, Terry and Sue. And it's wonderful, isn't it, to remember, for those of us who knew Jim, wonderful for us to remember his life and the impact he had on so many of us. And it's so great as well to still have Selene as a part of our church family here. So thanks for sharing that. You know, the one thing about Jim and Selene, I'd say both of them, and Terry and Sue mentioned this, is that Jim would be the last person to actually stand up here and share that about himself. So that's why we had to do it once he'd moved to a better place. And there's something in that, right, is that him and Selene have only ever wanted Jesus to be honored, God to be honored, God to be glorified. And it's not about them. And that's the thing about humility, right, is that it's not about us as Christian followers of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of him, it's this life that we live is not about us. It's about him. And we've been going through a wonderful series through the book of James over the last few weeks. And we're just going to now move into chapter 4. But I just want to give you a quick bit of context on James chapters 1 to 3. Really quick. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to look at James chapter 4, okay? So the first thing to, to, to think about is this. In the first three chapters of James 1 to 3, what's been happening is that James has been painting this picture about what we've been calling practical faith. And what James is saying really simply is this, is that, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have given your life to Jesus and you are now a believer in him, you've rested your faith on him, then he says that there's all of these different things that you will see in your life. And we've talked about things like the way that you speak will be different, okay? We've, we've talked about a, a number of different areas where your life will be transformed, the way that you look after the poor, the way that you consider people uh, better than yourself. And what James has been laying out is he's saying, okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're going to see all of this stuff happening in your life. The stuff that you see, the things that you do, they don't make you a believer in Jesus, but they are the result of you being a believer in Jesus. So it raises two questions for us, and it's been raising it over these last few weeks, and it's this. If you, if you believe that you are a follower of Jesus today, and you look at your life and you don't see this fruit, then it causes you to ask two things. Firstly, it's this. Am I on a trajectory towards Jesus and I'm just on that learning pathway? And so, yes, I'm not seeing all of that stuff all of the time, but I want to, and with God's help, I'm going to, to get there day by day. That could be one answer. Or the second answer is if you look at your life and you don't see any of this stuff, or not to much degree, you could also ask the question, am I actually a follower of Jesus Christ? You get it? So James isn't saying that this stuff makes you a follower of Jesus Christ, but he's saying that if you don't see it, ask yourself, why not? Am I actually a follower of him? Or if I know I am a follower of him, maybe I need to to do exactly what Jim said, and I need to get a mentor in my life who can walk with me along this journey because I want to see this stuff in my life that shows that I am becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So that's what we've been looking at over the last three chapters. And then we're going to start now at the very end of chapter 3, verse 18, and we'll, we'll, we'll go into chapter 4. But before we do, let's just pause and pray. Father, we want to thank you today for your amazing love for us. Lord, we've thought about it through our time of worship and communion. 
we've thought about it, Lord, as, as we've seen the way that you have brought uh, mothers into our lives. We've thought about it, Lord, in the way that we've just been reminded of, of Jim and Selene, Lord, and their relationship with you and how that imparted wisdom to so many others around this world. And Lord, we just want to turn now to your word and to say, God, speak to us afresh. Lord, we want to see our lives become more and more like Jesus. And so, Lord, help me to get out of the way this morning. And may people hear from you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of chapter 3, James has just painted this picture over three chapters of how we're meant to live. And then in verse 18, he says this, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Okay, so he's been talking about all the way that we should live, and then he says, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Now, really importantly, because this sets us up for the whole thing we're going to talk about today, that word righteousness in the original language, it, has, it can be used with quite a wide meaning. And I'll just give you two meanings that it can be used of. One meaning is it can talk about right standing between humanity and God. Okay, righteousness, right standing between humanity and God. Another way that some of the writers use it is to talk about right standing between individuals. Now, the interesting thing is, is that James, when he uses this word righteousness here, he uses it in its fullest extent. The way that he uses it is in its fullest extent. So he is talking about the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of right standing between people and God and between each other. Now, that is really fascinating because then he says this. He says what? He says, how has the fruit of righteousness come to be? Well, it comes out of the seed of peace by those who cultivate peace. Now, the question is this. Can you cultivate peace with yourself on your own in a dark room? Well, it's pretty easy to, right? Because there's no one else to fight with. There's no one else to have a disagreement with or a different view with or whatever. But if you actually want to cultivate peace, you need to do that in community. And we've been talking over the last year and a half, haven't we, about the fact that the church is not these, this building. It's not an institution. It is the people of God. And the thing about the people of God is that we need to learn how to get on together. We need to learn how to live at peace with one another. And we also together need to begin to show what it means to live at peace with God. And you can't do that on your own. It's why the Bible says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily, and even more so as you see the day of Jesus returning, coming closer. And so the writers in the New Testament, they show us that if we really want to see the fruit of righteousness, of right standing with God and right standing with one another. We need to do that in community. You can't do it on your own. And so what we're gonna see is that James is gonna show what do we need to do to see the fruit of righteousness in community. But before we get there, he goes into the next verse in chapter four, verse one. And he says this, 
what is the source of wars and fights among you? Now, this is a bit strange, right? He's just been talking about all the stuff that we should be doing for a few chapters. Then he says, the fruit of righteousness, this beautiful community, is a community that, is, that it comes out of the seed of peace. And then he says, so why are all these wars and fights amongst you? He looks out in the early church. You know, sometimes we have this, I don't know, almost like this fairy tale understanding of what the early church was like. The early church was rough, man. They had all been pulled out of their worlds, chucked in together, and told to live for Jesus and work it out. And it was hard. And James is looking at this early church and he is saying, man, there is wars and fights everywhere amongst you guys. What is going on? You're meant to be in this peaceful community. Look, far out. Why is it so important that Paul, or that James is saying that there shouldn't be wars and fights among you? Well, the reason it's so important as he goes on in this chapter, as Sue read before, is that he says this fighting amongst them is the result of what he calls friendship with the world. And the fighting, so you've got friendship with the world, the worldly patterns, which results in fighting, and that fighting is a sign of hostility toward God, he says. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say in verse 4, that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. To understand this, you've got to go back to John chapter 17, verse 23, and this is where Jesus is praying for all Christian believers, and this is what he says in verse 23 of John 17. He says, I am in them, and you are in me. He's praying to his God the Father. And he says this, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Let me read that again. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When the Christian church is living in unity, it is displaying this unbelievable, well, it is, it is unbelievable in my mind often, but it is, it is displaying this incredible reality that God loves us and that God loves his son. And it is saying to us that when we are in unity, it is this picture of right relationship with one another. And it proves to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. And it shows the world that God loves them. But if someone who doesn't know Jesus comes into our community, just like they would have been doing back here when James is writing, and all they see is fighting and wars. I mean, he uses some pretty full-on words, right? War. What do they see? They say, well, what's the difference there to what I'm experiencing over here? And so when we are fighting, when we are taking on the, the views of the world that results in fighting and it results in this hostility towards God because we are being hostile to the very structure that he has set up of Christian community, which is meant to be this beautiful picture of unity together in Christ. And so when you love worldly passions more than God, we fight. And when we fight, we disregard the one thing God has given the world to show who he is, the unity in the church, displaying the fruit of righteousness. And you know, this isn't just a warning for 2,000 years ago. I think Jim Chu would say to us, this is a warning for us today. 
if we are not careful, I believe that this church is founded on a beautiful picture of unity. But if we are not careful, it can go like that. And so I pray that as we look at this today, we would think in our own hearts, God, where is there hostility between me and you, God? Where is there stuff in my life that I need to sort out for the sake of this church because it's for the sake of your glory? And so I want us to look at three things that are going to understand us how to live in unified Christian community. We're going to focus on three points. Okay, the first one is the poison of pride. The second one is the power of humility. And the third one is the pathway to humility. I thought three's good, and there's lots of P's in there, so you should better remember it. The poison of pride, the power of humility, and the pathway to humility. Firstly, the poison of pride. Pride tells us how the wars and fights can start among us. What does he say in verse 1 and 2? What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. That word desire, or it may be translated in, in your, your Bible translation, lust or want, it comes from this Greek word, hedone, which is where we get the word hedonism, okay? And it's that sense of the pursuit, the outright pursuit of pleasure, of sensual self-indulgence. And what James is saying here is that there is this war, first and foremost, raging within us each individually. And it is a war within where the ultimate goal is self-indulgence. And look, I don't know if you want to be real with me, but being real with you today, I feel that every day, right? I always want to do stuff for myself. I remember my brother-in-law said to me, when you get married, you lose half your selfishness, and when you get kids, you lose the other half of your selfishness, and I'm still starting, I'm still learning how to lose the first part, but I tell you, you know, it's the thing about community again, right? Whether it's in a flat, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a, your workplace, whatever it is, when you come into community, you suddenly realize that, wow, I'm really self-absorbed. And that's where it starts. This is where this poison of pride starts. Even in prayer, James is saying, that there were people asking for stuff with wrong motives, that they could spend the stuff on themselves. So even when they were trying to be spiritual, they were still doing it with the wrong motives. It was all coming from the self-indulgence. And he's speaking to our culture, isn't he, right now? Speaking to a self-indulgent culture, which is all about me. And he's saying, man... You guys need to look at this because a self-indulgence breaks down community. You know, every single day we have an opportunity to die to ourselves hundreds of times, hundreds of times. The smallest little decisions that you make when you wake up in the morning through to the time that you go to bed show whether you're willing to focus on someone else or yourself. I remember my father who was a headmaster, he used to have this little thing that he would teach us all as students, right? And it was very simple. We would be walking down the corridor at school and there'd be doors that we, we used to have to go and open up these um, doors to go through the corridor. And he taught us, if you're coming and you see someone on the other side of that door, it doesn't matter how old they are, it doesn't matter who they are, if you're there first, you open that door, you, you stand aside and you let that person come through. Now, why did dad do that? Was that just good manners? Well, it was good manners, but that wasn't the reason. The reason he did that is... He wanted to teach people to look three feet in front of their own nose, to think about the other person. And when we are walking through our life, whatever it is that we do, 
We need to keep our eyes up and look for the other person. And so a simple thing like opening a door is saying, I'm putting myself second and I'm respecting you as a human being. I'm loving you. And if you put that through to all the decisions and interactions that we have in this community, wouldn't it be wonderful if we are looking for the opportunities to open doors for one another? To say, I'm going to put your needs before mine. I'm going to think about you before me. We have all of these opportunities every single day. But why do we have this self-indulgence in our lives? Well, it's because of the poison of pride. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 1700s. He was widely regarded as one of uh, America's first really important philosophical theologians. He's a great thinker. If you read any of his stuff, uh, it's meaty. It is really meaty. And I was listening to someone talking about him over, the, over yesterday, actually, and they were talking about a book that he wrote because Jonathan Edwards lived in a time where there were some amazing moves of God happening throughout America. But he was really interested to see that God would revive an area and the church would be on fire and people were coming to know Jesus and there was amazing stuff happening throughout society. And then it would stop. And he started to look at all of these different situations of where that happened. And then he wrote a book in his mind explaining what he had seen as to what quenched revival, what stopped it. And what he put it down to was pride. And he basically said that pride rose up within people and it started fighting in factions within the church and before you knew it, the revival was gone, the move of God was gone and they were just back to meeting in buildings again. But he talks about six things that he observed about pride and I wanna just go through these with you this morning and because Jerem got such an incredible rounding applause last week for putting up a table I'm going to put up a list, okay? And I don't usually like to use lots of PowerPoint, and I know all the rules about don't have too many words on a slide and all that kind of stuff, but I'm going to give you lots of words on a slide, okay? And we're going to build it up, and I'm hoping that you'll remember it just like you remember Jerem's sermons, okay? So I want to just go through these six things just really quickly that Jonathan Edwards talks about in terms of what he sees in the pride that he saw at that time. The first thing is this, spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. Spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. Interesting, isn't it? So quick to see it in someone else. And the second thing is linked with that. Pride leads you to speak of others' faults and to do it with an air of disdain. Have you heard about that person? Have you seen what they're doing? Oh my goodness, they call themselves a Christian. Thirdly, pride makes you to quickly separate from those you have criticized or those who have criticized you. You're cold to them or you avoid them. Man, how true that is. How true that is. You know, we, we don't like to be criticized, which is a sign of pride. Or we criticize, which is a sign of pride. And then if someone does criticize us, well, we want to avoid that person now. You can't do that in Christian community and actually live together in peace. We've got to work stuff through. Number four, a proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. A proud person cannot distinguish between major and minor points of belief because for proud people, they see everything they believe as major. Jerem actually hinted at this last week and I thought it was really true what he said. 
As a Christian community, there's some foundational stuff that we will never move on. Never move on it. But as a Christian community, there's some other stuff that we're all going to have different views on. And I love the fact that I can still be in Christian community with you and have a very different view on those things. But the only way that can happen is if we come to those discussions with humility and if we come to those discussions with love and we come to those discussions not thinking that those are actually the things that are the most important things. Do we have a humble heart around that? Number five, a proud person loves to confront because they love to find fault. Or they don't want to confront because they don't want to be criticized or to be involved in controversy. You know, if you overlove confronting or you hate confronting, it's probably a sign of pride. You love doing it because you're the one that's always right or you don't like doing it because actually you may then be criticized and you don't like that either because it goes at who you really are. It's a sign of pride in both ways. And finally, number six, I think this is really important. A proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves because proud people are filled with self-pity. Just think about this for a minute. Because we often think about pride as all about arrogance. But you know, the interesting thing is the Bible shows that proud people can actually be those who have low self-esteem. Because if you have low self-esteem, it goes like this, I'm no good, I'm not confident, I'm too shy, I'm down, I'm always down on myself, I'm always feeling bad about myself, I'm always guilty. And what is that all about? Me. And self-pity and self-loathing is actually a sign of pride again because it's putting all of the focus on me. Look at me. Look how bad I am. Look how shy I am. Da, 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 da. We can be proud through being arrogant. We can also be proud with self-pity because pride is all about self-indulgence. It's all about me. And so pride that leads to self-indulgence is the poison of community. And you might say, well, perhaps it breaks down Christian community, but is it still that offensive to God? Well, let's look back at James, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. James says this, in answer to this question, is it offensive to God? You adulterous people. Do you know the interesting thing is, that word adulterous is not actually the right word. The translators have put it in there because it makes it easier for us to read, but it actually says this, you adulteresses. Now, the men in the room go, well, how does that work for me? I'm a bloke, and that's a feminine word. But that's because there's a point that James is making that goes throughout the, the whole trajectory of the Bible. And the point is this, is that the story that we see in the Bible, this wonderful, grand story, is that God has been calling out a people for himself. And that people, the church, is called the bride of Christ, feminine, the bride of Christ. And Christ is the husband. And so man or woman, we are all, if we are followers of Jesus, part of the bride, right? And what James is saying here is that when pride gets into our community and results in sin, we, as it were, we are adulteresses. We are committing adultery against our husband, Jesus. Whoa. Does pride matter to God? Absolutely. Because I've got to say, I'm an adulterer. In that reading there, I have so often sinned 
and fallen short of God's standard, man. I know that my life has pride in it. And I know that God hates it. It matters to God. It matters the way that we do this community. It matters the way that we love one another. You know, God doesn't just love us like a king and his subjects. He loves us like a husband should love his wife. And it's why in verse 5 we read that the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. When God looks at this community, when he looks at his bride and he sees wars and fighting and and he sees self-pity and he sees arrogance and he sees all of this stuff, wow, his spirit envies intensely. And so what is the antidote? If we know the poison is pride, what is the antidote? The antidote is the power of humility. Verse 10, James ends these verses saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And in James 4, 6, we read, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I want us to take us back to that list from Jonathan Edwards. And as I was listening to, uh, to Tim Keller uh, go through this list, because he'd read the book, I haven't read the book. He then went on and he said, so what is the opposite? What would humility be against each of these things? And I'm just going to go through them because then at the end of it, you might want to take a photo. And my encouragement to you is that you would take that away this week. And in your quiet times, think about this. Okay? When you're just in, in your time with God this week, you think about this. Because this is, this is the list as it goes. A humble person, firstly this, a humble person is more aware of their own faults than that of others so that they're slow to speak critically of others And when they do, it's never unkindly or disdainfully. You know, Jim Chu asking Terry to hold him accountable for his actions. He knew that he had faults like everyone else. Thirdly, a humble person sticks with people through difficult relationships and doesn't give up on them. When you know there's there's something going on that's not quite right or someone's criticized you, you say, you know what, I've probably done it before as well, so I'm going to stick at this relationship. Fourthly, a humble person is very flexible rather than being dogmatic. Is very flexible rather than being dogmatic. Are you flexible on the things that don't actually affect salvation? Or are you dogmatic without moving? Fifthly, a humble person is not afraid of confronting, but they don't like it. And when they do it, they're very persuasive because they're not out to win, they're out to heal. They're not out to win, they're out to heal. And finally, a humble person has almost no self-pity. They're never grumbling or complaining about life because they know who they are in Christ. How are you doing on that list? How am I doing on that list? I don't know about you, but I find that really confronting as I've been studying it over, particularly yesterday. Wow, where am I at on this list? I know that I need to apply the antidote of humility every day. But how do I do that? And how do you do that when every day I feel like I fail in some way? How do I take this antidote of humility and apply it to the poison of pride when I just seem to keep mucking up? Well, let's finish with the pathway to humility. Verse 7, we read a few things in here. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, weep about your sin. They're all actions, aren't they? 
The pathway to humility requires us to do something. You don't get humble by just sitting on your seat and waiting. You gotta do something. But if you leave here today simply trying to live better, work harder, love stronger, I guarantee you'll fail. And if you go out of here today feeling like James has just told us to do a whole lot more stuff, I've failed in my role. I've just heaped up a whole lot more responsibility on you, and I can guarantee you may not even make it home before you've messed it up. You see, James, not this James, but this James, is telling us to be better people. Isn't just telling us to be better people. Look at verses five and six again. I love what he says here. The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. If you've got a pen, I want you to circle but. I love it in the Bible where, and this is but he, but God. I love it in the Bible where you see but God. Because you've just had all these verses saying there's war and there's fighting and there's strife and there's you know, hostility toward God. All of this stuff is going on, but God. God comes into the moment where we can't do anything on our own and he says, I'm gonna give you more grace to do it. I'm gonna be the one that's gonna help you when you walk out those doors to be the husband you wanna be, to be the flatmate you wanna be, to be the employee you wanna be, to be the boss you wanna be. You can't do it on your own. Only God can do it through you. And he will give us more grace. You see, this is the secret pathway to humility. It shows that God is on the move in our lives and it's predicated on us realizing that all the things that we need to do to humble ourselves, submitting to God, resisting the devil and all the others, we're actually incapable of doing. Instead, we need to rely on the but God gives us greater grace. So how do we do that? Well, when we find it impossible to continually submit to God, we remember that Jesus, who was God himself, humbly submitted to his Father's will and became a baby born in a stable. When we can't submit, we realize Jesus submitted for us. When we find it impossible to continually resist the temptations of the devil, we remember Jesus resisted him and the devil and defeated him when he rose again from the dead. When you're struggling to submit, you say, Jesus, I'm struggling right now, I'm sorry, to, to resist. God, help me resist the devil today, because I know you did it, help me to do it. And even when we can't do it, even when we, when we, sorry, when we fail to do it, we remember that that doesn't determine my salvation, that doesn't determine my state before God. What determines that is that Jesus resisted the devil, and I stand in that. You know, the interesting thing is, when you go back and look at Moses in the Old Testament, there's the verse in the Bible that says Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. But think what Moses did. He goes up to Pharaoh, the guy who was in charge of the known world kind of thing, and had all the powers that you could ever want. And he goes to him and says, Moses, he goes to him and says, Pharaoh, if you don't give me all of your slave force by the end of today, this is what's going to happen to you. Does that sound like a humble man? the way that we think about humility. See, humility isn't cowering away in the corner and not saying anything. Humility is knowing who you are in God and being able to stand on that and speak truth into error. Speak truth to a world that needs to hear it. But you do it with humility. You do it like Moses did. Moses realized he was nothing. It was all God. But because of that, 
he realized that he could speak truth into those situations. You know, T. Raja is a friend of mine in India. He works, well, he works, he runs a home for the destitute and dying. They've got about 800 people that come off the streets, literally, and he cares for them until they die, mostly. And he said to me, you know, he says, I will go. He says, because I am a child of God, he said, I will go anywhere to any person and demand for the rights of my people. That's what Moses was doing. And T. Rajan knows who he is, and he's one of the most humble men you'll ever meet, but he is not timid, man. He is not timid. He will fight for what he knows is true and just. When we long to draw near to God, and yet we feel so distant, we remember that Christ hung on a cross, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that you and I can draw near to God and never be forsaken. You see, the pathway to humility is realizing that Christ has done for us everything we fail to do on our own. And so when we read here, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, you realize that the first step to true humility is to admit that you can't save yourself. The first step to being a humble person is to admit that you and I need a savior and that savior is Jesus Christ. And he is qualified to save you because he humbled himself even to the point of death. So God exalted him. And he put him high above all the powers. And right now Jesus resides with God in heaven. And the Bible says that he intercedes on our behalf. For all the times that I haven't been able to resist, for all the times that I've fought with someone and, and all the times that pride has bubbled up, Jesus intercedes on my behalf and says, Father, forgive James. I've, I've taken that. I've paid that for him. The second and third and fourth and millionth step on the pathway to humility is to realize that God's kingdom has often been called the upside-down kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The pathway to humility is filled with daily steps of laying down your rights, laying down your requirement to always be right, laying down your desire to avoid someone you don't like, laying down your love of being confrontational, laying down your desire for more stuff, and laying down your feelings of self-pity and realizing that this life isn't about you, it's about God. And if we truly want to live under the greater grace that God offers us, then we will experience the fruit of righteousness that is sown in a Christian community of peace. And the world will know that there is a God. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord that he will lift us up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you today that this message is for every one of us. It doesn't matter where we're from, it doesn't matter how long we've known you or whether we don't even know you yet, this message is for us. And Lord, I want to pray right now, God, that this week as we go out of here, I pray, Lord, that many, many people in this room would take out that list again, would take out James 4 this week, and would humbly on their knees, maybe, before you say, Lord, check my heart. 
Help me, Lord, to walk the pathway of humility.